Welcome back to another episode of the Health Mastery Show. Today I have on with me Alan Flanagan. Alan, like myself, is from Dublin, but at the moment he is doing his PhD at the University of Surrey in England. Alan puts out a lot, a lot of great content. I've been following him for about a year or so now online. And most of this stuff that he puts out is with regards to, say, public health or just general health rather than, say, bodybuilding or sports or physique enhancement. However, we had a great conversation today about some of the things that bodybuilders or recreational bodybuilders, people who just want to improve their body composition, don't necessarily think about when it comes to health. Some people tend to use that word interchangeably like a weight training or you know bodybuilding and then health and it's not necessarily always the case and sometimes people who are trying to enhance their physiques even if you're not using like drugs or anything like that kind of miss the forest for the trees when it comes to health and don't aren't always in the best position in terms of setting up their diet for long-term health so that's what we kind of talk about today it's a really really interesting conversation with alan and i hope you enjoy it if you do enjoy the podcast, please do leave a rating and review, but I won't take too much more of your time. Let's get into the podcast with Alan Flanagan. So Alan, my man, thank you for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Adam. Delighted to be here eventually. Yeah, it's great. You're the the first person from Dublin to have on the podcast and, and the second Irish person. Right. Okay. So there's 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 some there's some milestone. Yeah, it's a milestone. Yeah. So uh, first of all, congratulations on um, hooking up with. Um, it sounds a bit weird, but um, getting <laughs> with <laughs> hooking up with Danny Lennon. Yeah. Um, but no, after the nightclub, and um, no, but joining forces with Sigma Nutrition. Yeah. You're, you're now the chief science officer. That's it. Um, and I've been following you for I, I don't know maybe two years or so at this stage, and I, and I think and I found you first through social media. I think a friend of mine. Um, just said oh have a look at this guy's story or something I can't remember what you're talking about specifically on that day but I think uh, the thing that I really like um, about your kind of content and that you put out is that you're you're obviously very intelligent Um, you're you're currently studying um, you're you're currently doing your PhD I'll let you introduce yourself in a second but just as giving you my perception but you're yeah you're, you're obviously a very smart individual but you don't beat people with the stick of science so that's something that i really 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 hate so you'll often get like people like personal trainers or whatever they 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 do this to the general public and say oh you're so so stupid you you think that sugar is going to make you fat it's all about calories but you can take a next step up and i've even seen people who have like doctorates um, in nutrition science or training or, or exercise science who are they'll do the same to like the people who are just maybe not as smart as they are and right and, explain these things essentially trying to confuse people yeah um, just to show how smart they are and say well here's here's the answer and it's be just i've confused you because i'm smarter than you now i'm right and i'm the the guru and it's almost like a charles poliquin thing like like he used to do where he used to just make something really really complex so that you'd be confused and be like well i don't right. really know what he's talking about but he sounds smart so everything it he must say be it must probably... be right yeah because it's so high abstract and sounds so complicated it must be correct and i must be dumb enough if i can't understand it that kind of thing yeah yeah exactly that and, really I, and frustrates i think that's something me. that you don't do so that's why i really appreciate well, I, it because i definitely try not to i do definitely there are some movements or, or some kind of individuals in nutrition that i definitely take aim at but for the for the general public for science communication 
my big problem with what you've just described is the fact that when a lot of the people that that engage in that kind of like bashing of oh you're an idiot because this meta-analysis showed this or this rtc showed this and i'm looking at them going do you even know how a meta-analysis can be flawed or are you just saying Mm. it's evidence because it's on the top of this pyramid that you think actually reflects the quality of a study so what i find amusing slash also frustrating about people that that do that is it's so clear to me that they actually don't really have a lot of scientific literacy because they're always relying on the design of a trial or a study as the stick to beat people with but that's clearly showing that they don't really have a grasp of science and a level of scientific literacy that allows them to explain to those people why that study says it, what it does or what they say it does um, and, and show people how it, how it says that. So what I try and do certainly with Instagram and it's why I use Instagram and not Twitter because with the, the story kind of format on Instagram is I try and show people if it's a particular study or, or a particular research question, try and show them via the kind of the actual studies themselves how x is x and how the these studies confirm or show that x is x if you know what i mean yeah and we can talk a little bit about that i think you've done some work specifically around um digging up some flaws within some research on saturated fats i know on your website you've yeah. done um you're kind of your your membership website mm-hmm. um but first w- would you like to introduce yourself to to people listening to yeah. how you got into this i know you didn't start off in the area of nutrition but you you now no. are doing a phd yeah. right yeah so I, I had a bit of a random uh, kind of route into nutrition where i started out as someone i was always interested in nutrition in the way that i think a lot of us get interested in it which is through some sort of sport um and I played rugby all through school and I kind of was always interested in nutrition, maybe giving me some sort of extra edge. And I got quite interested in bodybuilding and, 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 and just weightlifting when I was about kind of 15, 16. And for most of my early late teens and early twenties, I kind of trained like a bodybuilder and played rugby. So I never, none of my, I found kind of rugby specific training boring. I enjoyed training, um, following kind of more bodybuilding style principles and programs so nutrition was always there as an interest, but in terms of my academic interests, it was kind of always more the humanities. So I, I did English and history in college, and then I did law after that. And then I started working as a barrister in Dublin, and I stayed in that profession for nine years. But during that period, I was kind of asking questions about whether it was really what I wanted to do with the rest of my life kind of thing. You know, a midlife crisis at 25 is always good. And I had always loved nutrition and I thought why not try and do something at least some sort of study in this area and see see where it goes and see if I like it and so what started out is just basically keeping my brain active and doing something for academic interest over the course of my master's really developed into something extra and by the time I was finishing the master's I had really been bitten by the research bug I loved the idea of doing science and and being in research and then I got an opportunity at the end, after I'd finished my MSc um, from one of the professors at Surrey to to jump on board a full-time PhD project in nutrition. And and that was it. So I, I jumped at that opportunity and a year and a bit later, here I am in the second year of my PhD. 
So what are you currently doing your PhD in? It's it's around chrononutrition, right? So it's chrononutrition. Yeah, we're looking at timing of food intake and the relationship between circadian rhythms and your metabolism. And so we did a last year, we did a, a forced jet lag study where we're really trying to tease out, you know, the kind of effects of delaying your meal timing and your sleep timing by, say, five hours and, and what effect that has on your blood glucose levels uh, your insulin um and your kind of your triglycerides and and also things like energy expenditure is one of the main kind of outcomes we're looking at um and seeing if there's uh, some sort of effect on on energy expenditure or your thermic effect of feeding in response to meals um so that was last year and we're kind of crunching the data now and starting to starting to look at the um starting to analyze the blood samples so we should be pulling together a pretty full data set on that in the next couple of months which is exciting and then my my big aim for this year is to do a a second study looking at um the effect of dietary protein intake during the biological night as a potential strategy for night shift workers so there's a lot of research that looks at kind of you know, carbohydrate and fat metabolism during the the biological night, you know, one, two, three, four AM is really impaired. But if you look at some of the sports nutrition literature, there's a lot of research looking at overnight protein feeding as a strategy to maintain muscle protein synthesis. And you had a proof and concept study from Luc Van Loon's research group in, in Holland that did a nasogastric feeding study. So they were constantly infusing amino acids into people's digestive tract while they were asleep. And they found that there was complete amino acid digestion at night. So it suggests that for dietary protein, you do actually absorb it at night. Now, the caveat there is these people were asleep and not awake. So you get the negative effects of just like being awake during the night as well with shift work. Mm. But from that body of research, I've kind of formed a hypothesis that actually if you focused on protein rich snacks that were low in kind of total calories, but low in carbohydrate and fat. So like a non-fat Greek yogurt, for example, and those kind of foods, and you had them at, say, 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. Or, or whatever the snack times are during the night, then you might get a less negative impact on your blood glucose levels and your and your blood lipids. And maybe you might also have the kind of satiating effect of protein carry over into the following day. So you're not as likely to kind of um, potentially succumb to, you know, some of the overeating that is really common with, with sleep deprivation or sleep curtailment so that's my hypothesis um i'm just hoping to do a pilot study to get some proof and concept data for that um but yeah so fingers crossed i i should be able to pull that off sometime before the end of this calendar year yeah that sounds very interesting i can picture you in a couple of years time with some contraption yes. or like a mr olympia <laughs> bodybuilder with the tube up his nose right yes. so can... <laughs> constant amino when... acid infusion yeah. <laughs> no, I remember when I was younger, um, I used to watch like these uh, bodybuilder videos of like the, you know, the Mr. Olympias, like Jay Cutler, and, and mm. he, he like they'd wake up like two times a night to have right. a shake, so yeah. that they keep. It was it's crazy to think about that. Like e- even even though yeah, it probably did increase muscle protein synthesis, like the the negative impact it would have because of the, t- the amount of times that you would wake up and then right. try to get back to sleep. Um, which is a good segue into the topic that we want to talk about, and that's kind of the. The, the dumb stuff or the irrational stuff that bodybuilders do now i know that you're not necessarily a bodybuilder and um, you said you did 
bodybuilding training but i remember yeah. you used to post quite a bit about powerlifting your oh powerlifter, yeah right? yeah i'm still 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 in powerlifting i just as my kind of social media evolved i just it, you know it, it was never going to be a powerlifting account anyway so i just kind of stopped yeah. posting about power, my my Fair mediocre enough. powerlifting yeah. journey <laughs> yeah well anybody who's not a bodybuilder is at least an aspiring bodybuilder right exactly <laughs> yeah um but yeah so so yeah, it's a, I like to have people on the on the podcast who kind of have are, are in the trenches almost like so they're not just mm. a, a doctor or or studying something but don't say do any kind of resistance training so at least they have that element or aspect of it as well. Right. But with regards to um things that bodybuilders do and when I say bodybuilders we kind of spoke a bit off air on this and I'm talking really about people who are into say improving their body composition. Mhm. What do you th- what do you think some of the say irrational things that people um do that don't really make sense from a nutritional standpoint and and the first thing that I can kind of think of we we talked about this is um thinking that saturated fat will increase your testosterone levels so is that actually true and then w- what's the issue with actually trying to uh, increase um proactively your saturated intake because I, I know that there's a there maybe it's not so big anymore but it definitely was a couple of years ago like buttered coffee like yeah, bulletproof yeah. coffee or coconut oil and i had some friends who would literally just like leather their food in, in saturated fats right so the first thing uh, in terms of this kind of correlation between saturated fat and testosterone i, I think that was some sort of I'm, I'm not sure where that actually comes from i, I think it a lot of practices and and ideas that take hold in nutrition take hold because um, of these kind of like ideas people put together, right? And there's a lot of, um, you know, so for example, with a lot of the saturated fat stuff, you had this kind of romantic idea of our evolutionary past, you know, and we, we would have run around just killing a woolly mammoth and gorging on meat. And so that narrative feeds into what is, you know, considered, quote, manly and, you know, what what kind of is associated with, you know, being a kind of an alpha male. It's like you eat meat, right? Because that's what... And so I think a lot of those narratives make their way into what people do with their diet. And with the saturated fat and testosterone thing, I think it's very much this idea that, well, you know, saturated fat is found in foods like red meat and stuff. Red meat is a manly food. <laughs> uh, therefore, you know, there's this relationship. And then I think who really kind of blew it into the public consciousness was Tim Ferriss in one of his books when he, and I, I've always really enjoyed Tim Ferriss's writing and I have all his books, but the one place I could never just fathom the nonsense out of him was, was with nutrition claims. And so he has a thing in one of his books where he says he spent 21 days eating nothing but like grass fed beef. Uh, and he, t- and, and when he came back, you know, uh, people could smell pheromones off him and, you know, it was all this primal response and he w- he was healing wounds in like two days and it was just ridiculous kind of claims. So I think he really gave birth to this idea that, you know, saturated fat is, is correlated with being like, you know, a testosterone fueled red blooded male. What we know from, from objective research is that they're the primary relationship between sex hormones and dietary kind of intake is going to relate to overall energy balance. So whether it's men or women in a protracted state of an energy deficit over time, there is a negative impact on reproductive hormones. And that's simply because we don't have a lot of energy available 
uh, to us, either in our diet or, you know, in terms of relative to how big the deficit is, you know, how, how much energy is being asked, is the body being asked to make up the difference for. And we compensate because our human metabolism is relatively fixed. If we are not getting in a lot of energy to meet our requirements, the body down regulates other physiological processes that are energy costly and, and reproductive function is one of them. So that's the first thing is the, the, the primary relationship between sex hormone production and levels in both men and women. Um, so estrogen and, and, and reproductive function in women um, and testosterone and, and reproductive function in men both correlate to overall energy expenditure uh, or and, and energy intake. So energy balance is the primary determinant there. And then secondarily, there has been some associations in some research looking at kind of energy balance and, and looking at kind of dietary interventions in a, in a kind of resistance training or sports context that has suggested that in the context of an energy deficit, a higher percentage of, of dietary fat may help somewhat attenuate reductions in testosterone levels that occur with dieting. However, I think anyone in physique-oriented sports would um, probably appreciate that, you know, that, that that's a trade-off. If you were preparing for a show, you know, the priority would be to maintain high training capacity, and that's going to be more achievable for most people with an added amount of dietary carbohydrate. And so when resources in terms of dietary intake become scarce in the context of dieting and an energy deficit, um, you know, how you economize your, your macronutrient intake is an important factor. And so the magnitude of attenuation of reduced testosterone from keeping dietary fat higher, it, for me, is not a big enough effect size to warrant not having more dietary carbohydrate in the diet. You know, you're talking about keeping dietary fat at, say, 30 to to 40%, which some people might like to do, and they might be happy with a lower overall amount of carbohydrate. So I think in this context, it's important to say that really it's just a trade-off at that point. But in terms of the actual composition of fat, then, you know, that there's nothing to say that that saturated fat is the primary subtype of fat that one would want to preserve testosterone levels. And actually what we have now coming out from a body composition perspective is that a higher level of polyunsaturated to saturated fat intake is associated with favorable reductions in central abdominal fat and visceral adipose tissue. Now, visceral tissue is probably not an issue in most physique-oriented or physique-minded competitors, but there is a suggestion there that optimizing fat subtype balance during a dieting phase may have some sort of a kind of influence on um, you know, ab abdominal fat uh, loss and pre preferential kind of abdominal fat loss. Um, so there's nothing in the research that suggests that saturated fat is, is essentially required to keep high testosterone levels. Testosterone levels will inevitably drop in the context of protracted dieting or energy deficit. And there, while there's some suggestion that keeping a higher up to 40% dietary fat intake in the context of an energy deficit might help somewhat attenuate testosterone levels i think that really the trade-off there is you know do you want to keep slightly higher levels or which which may not be the magnitude of effect may not be that big or would would you in terms of setting up a diet for a client 
prefer them to have more dietary carbohydrate intake to, to fuel training. And I think that's very yeah. much an individual thing, preference thing, and whatever the coach kind of is, is minded to do with his individual client. Yeah. I think you're, you're dead on at that. Like people often kind of essentially missing the forest for the trees, especially if your goal is number one, if you're not a physique athlete, you're not going to be dieting down to the point where your hormones are negatively affected. That's just stupid. <laughs> but, um, if you're in, if you're in a, a controlled starvation with uh, some some physique competition or or whatever, um, I think like you said, yeah, you might have slight reductions in tes- in testosterone levels, which is going to happen anyway when you get to really lean. But if you if you're if you're adding in more fat or say having fat at the expense of less carbohydrates, you probably can't get as much training volume in, which is probably more tightly tightly uh, re- or, or closely associated with. Um, you know keeping muscle mass which is obviously going to be the goal so you're like well i want to keep higher testosterone so I don't lose muscle mass but now my training is affected so i can't lift as much so i'm actually going to lose more more muscle through that mechanism rather than through lower testosterone like if you look at the the 3d mg guys yeah um you know the, the way that certainly people like i mean alberto nunez's diet is incredibly low in dietary fat during his contest preps i think he has about 40 grams a day um and the, you know there's 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 no negative implications in terms of his physique prep obviously the guy's a phenom so you know that's that's where the individual preference comes in and in that particular case it's it's a competitor who would rather once dietary protein intake is taken care of have the majority of his energy coming from dietary carbohydrates so yeah you know but you you might get someone that in terms of their and it comes it's you know, with this kind of question, I think it's important to always remind ourselves, actually, we're not even talking about what's what's optimal in terms of like the the hormonal stuff or the drug. It's also about what do people like eating? Some people might just like eating kind of foods that are, are fattier foods, right? So, you know, that individual might might not want to drop dietary fat as a percentage below, you know, 35% of their energy. And that's that's totally fine, you know, as long as they're able to sustain a high training output and they enjoy the foods they're eating while they're dieting i don't think there's any real right or wrong answer here in fact there isn't one you know yeah i actually tried a, a couple of years ago i i tried a ketogenic diet and um after about two days i was like i'm sick of eating like rashers and avocados and red meat i just need some carbohydrates um but with regards then to say what i mentioned earlier um with it's not necessarily physique contest prep related, but definitely people who are trying to pr- prove their body composition have, have done this and I've seen it. It's been uh, probably Tim Ferriss as well. It's probably promoted this, but putting butter in your coffee or um, eating, um, you know, coconut oil to try and uh, you know, bur- increase fat burning or to uh, increase satiety. Um, is, is there any issue specifically with increasing your, um saturated fat intake over and above what it would normally be and and does that make a difference whether you're in a calorie deficit or a surplus or is it magnified if you're eating an excess amount of calories right so i think generally yes that that craze of you know you eat fat to burn fat and that kind of became a real mantra um of i again there's something visceral about people's associations with saturated fat that i've never quite figured out i mean you know eat fat to lose fat as a mantra easily could have translated to people putting you know olive oil in their coffee um and (laughs) i don't know why people didn't do that but with 
it, it, you know, it manifests as people putting, you know, butter and MCT oil or butter and coconut oil in their coffee. Um, and, you know, that there's, we, we know from a kind of a whole body of evidence that goes back to the 1950s that saturated fats will have the greatest increasing effect on, on blood cholesterol levels, in particular LDL cholesterol. And so the idea that, you know, putting two tablespoons of, of butter in coffee is uh, a positive, um, you know, is, is there's, there's no uh, evidence anywhere that could support that that intervention, you know, or that nutritional practice will be a good thing to do. So, uh, you know, that, that craze, I think there was two things that, that came along with it as far as justifications. One was that um, you increase your cognitive capacity because your brain runs on fats. I mean, there's simply no evidence for that whatsoever. We do know that there are certain fats that are vital for cognitive function over the course of the lifespan, but those fats are, are primarily uh, polyunsaturated fats that are found in oily fish, for example, so long-chain omega-3 fatty acids in particular. Um, and then the idea that you would get some sort of increased effect on metabolism and uh, that was more related to the coconut oil or MCT oil element. And you get this very transient effect. They are metabolized differently. But again, the, the size of the effect is, is fairly tiny. And it in no way corresponds to any sort of effect that would have you lose more weight. Um, now, with, with MCT oil, there is an added potential mechanism for satiety, definitely, it's an understudied area. There is definitely a mechanism by which kind of those short to medium chain fatty acids can induce uh, satiety in, in, in people. And so people have less hunger and there is some emerging evidence to support that. Um, but would that be compared to, would that be compared to say other equivalent amount of calories from other saturated fats or to other macronutrients? So the, would an equivalent amount of carbohydrates have less of a, an impact on your hunger uh, theoretically than coconut oil or MCT or, um, or MCTs? Or was it just comparing saturated fat to another type of saturated right. fat? Right. And so that's the thing. In the context of saturated fats, th those, they are unique. Um, the other saturated fats do not behave like that. And so there, there definitely is not a similar effect. In terms of the research to date, there, there is no comparable effect with other types of, of saturated fatty acids. With carbohydrate, you could certainly make a case that an equivalent amount of calories from MCT oil could induce satiety if we were talking about dietary fiber and particularly mm. soluble fiber and beta-glucan uh, fibers that are found in, for example, oats. Um, and they're highly viscous and they basically pull in a lot of water when they're in the gut and that leads to quite a kind of a, a bulk of, of bolus food in the gut and has very strong satiating mechanisms. So, yeah, I think if you if you match that MCT oil with dietary fiber, I don't think anyone's done this study, but my hypothesis would be that actually the dietary fiber has a more satiating effect um, because of the transit time, whereas MCT uh, fatty acids are metabolized quite quickly. Uh, so there is a kind of a, a, a satiating mm. effect, but the legacy effect of dietary fiber transit time through the gut would 
I think mean that you get still more of a satiating effect from yeah. from the f- and also things like just the, the food volume and and sensory signals from your stomach expanding, um, which isn't going to really happen from a tablespoon of, of coconut oil or, or MCT. So then, with regards to um, say saturated fat limits, do you have would would you have any recommendations? I know that on a population level, you've you've posted some stuff before how in, in Finland. Um, I think it was Finland, right? That the the overall the overall increase or decrease in saturated fat was correlated with increase or decreases in was it heart disease? Yeah, they had an, was... they had an eighty percent reduction in heart disease mortality over a thirty five year period in Finland, um, and that occurred in the context of a public health intervention that specifically targeted reducing saturated fat, but specifically butter, which is really interesting given the whole butter and coffee thing, but. Finland had the highest level of, of butter consumption and it was the primary uh, contributing food to saturated fat in their diet. So their public health intervention deliberately targeted reducing butter intake. And it started in 1972 and, and you know, 35 years later, uh, you know, they had an 80% reduction in cardiovascular mortality. And when you looked at the various interventions they targeted, one was body weight in the population. That went up. The other was smoking. That really didn't change that much in the population. And then the other was hypertension. And there was a reduction in blood pressure, but the reduction in blood pressure didn't come anywhere near the magnitude of reduction in blood cholesterol levels across the population. And so of the 80% reduction in cardiovascular mortality, the majority, two thirds of that reduction was associated with reduced blood cholesterol levels. And that was because they managed to get dietary saturated fat at the population level down from 23% to about 12. Um, 12% is give or take where we're sitting at in Ireland and the UK at a population level. Um, generally speaking, 10% is the, is the threshold that's recommended. And people question that. But if you look at healthy diet patterns, like the Mediterranean diet pattern or the Japanese traditional Japanese diet pattern, or these blue zone diets, they're all dietary patterns that are low in saturated fat. And they're not even at the 10% threshold we're looking at in, in our public health guidance. They're six, seven, eight percent So the I don't see anything wrong with having a high total fat intake, um, but I think the total uh, body of evidence that we have certainly supports having the majority of your fats from unsaturated fat sources particularly from fish and plant sources and having saturated fat come as a byproduct of, of some animal produce as it does in the kind of Mediterranean or in the, in the traditional Japanese style diet. So, you know, having, having a meal of a food that is high in saturated fat is not going to have an adverse effect. So having a steak, having a Sunday lamb roast with the family, like that's not good. what we're talking about in terms of risk between high saturated fat intake and heart disease is a cumulative diet that is total the all of the the sum of all the foods in the diet are leading to a high percentage of energy from saturated fat and then sustaining that kind of dietary pattern over a long term um yeah yeah that's that's pretty pretty interesting i didn't know about that that the, in the Finnish study that the body weight the body weight actually went up because people will typically think well well yeah they're, they're overweight so that's why they have those issues but their body weight actually went up and uh, heart disease yeah. actually went down right. so that's pretty and, interesting and, and that's, because that's why the Finns are the best case study for this because in the UK population for example 
you know, one of the biggest was, was that smoking rates from the 1960s were slashed. And so when people talk about, oh, well, saturated fat is probably not something we need to get people to reduce because we need to focus on body weight and reduce smoking and blah, blah, blah. It's like you look at the fins and you're like, well, in that period, no one stopped smoking and everyone's body weight went mm. up. So it's quite yeah. strong, uh, st- a strong support for, for our mm. current recommendations. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've ever been to Finland, but I've been to the, the I've been there before and I've been to the Scandinavian countries a couple of times. People don't actually smoke that much up there. They all chew uh, this thing called snus, which is like this tobacco thing you put in your lip and you look like a rabbit. It's like stinks, but uh, it's, it's strange. It's like smoking is like, not frowned upon but people just don't do it for some reason really um yeah compared to like if you go to like even i know in, in continental europe like france yeah they smoke they a lot, just but, smoke but, away but, but even ireland and the uk they, they smoke a lot more than people do in like norway sweden but but snooze is like really really popular it's this thing you like it's like a little packet of of tobacco or something like nicotine and you shove it in, under your gum and it goes into your blood that way it's it's horrible but uh that's really popular up there um but yeah going back it's a bit off topic but but yeah it, it's interesting like i said because i think like a lot of people that i've surrounded myself with throughout my career i was a personal trainer a couple of years ago and um and, and people that are quite say fit in terms of looking at them they look physically fit and in shape they they will kind of dismiss that and say well you know it, it's because people are overweight or fat do you think then that even a high energy intake from saturated fat and um, even if you are, say, somewhat lean, of course it won't be as the magnitude probably won't be as 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 high. But do you think it still could lead to some of these complications and issues? Yeah, well, one of the things that I I kind of became aware of, in particularly in the kind of the, the the fitness industry, was that there seems to be this assumption that once you're in an energy deficit and lean, none of the ramifications of what we know about diet and health matter anymore. And I, I just don't think that, I, I think that's speculative. Um, sure, in the short term, you know, weight loss might improve certain metabolic uh, markers. One thing we know about weight loss is that it doesn't really have that much of an impact on blood cholesterol levels. Um, so exercise for cardiovascular health is very much a function of improving cardiorespiratory fitness. But if you even if you with a ten, on an average of ten kilos of weight loss, the reduction in, in blood cholesterol levels is only like 0.04 millimolar, which which basically I mean is just nothing. So the magnitude of, of reduction of cholesterol from weight loss isn't isn't that high, and blood lipids will respond to dietary intake acutely, even in the context of an energy deficit. So for me, these principles do still apply. Um, you know, even if someone was in an energy deficit and lean, there are reasons why you still want the majority of your fats to be unsaturated, um, you know, oily fish, oil, olive oil, those kind of nuts and seeds, those kind of fat sources, um, as opposed to, as opposed to, uh, you know, purposefully increasing dietary saturated fat intake, which one of the things about cardiovascular disease progression is that it can start in your 20s when you're otherwise fit and active. And we know this from some of the Vietnam War autopsy studies where you were talking about 19, 20, 21 year old American GIs who, you know, had just come out of playing high school football and were were on paper fit and healthy, but had evidence of plaque accumulation in their arteries because of their dietary habits. Um, And so the progression of heart disease is not 
negated simply by being young and fit. Um, it's a cumulative process that develops over the course of decades. And so dietary practices in your 20s and 30s can influence um, you know, the process of, of atherosclerosis at that point and, and then influence risk 30 years down the line. So I don't see a reason why we should kind of make exceptions for something um, you know, just, just because at this point in time, an individual is training and active and healthy. I think the, the best practice principles of diet still apply to them as much as they apply to someone that might be, you know, overweight. Yeah. And I, and I think even in the context of somebody who only really cares about body composition, they're, they're, they don't really put health for now, maybe because they're young at the forefront. Um, I think it was the, the study you were referring to earlier. Was that the study um, where they compared the two different muffins, one which was like saturated fat, one was polyunsaturated fat? On uh, visceral fat. Yeah, was, was that the study? No, have you seen that study lately? I can't remember um, exactly. Um, I don't think it was. It was I'm not sure if it was muffin. Um, but there, there are a number of studies that have all had that have all kind of found the same, the same thing. Yeah. So I, I can't remember the exact name of the study now, but they basically compared two exactly the same calorie muffins one which had like 50 percent of the calories from saturated fat and the other was 50 percent of the fat uh, from polyunsaturated fat and the difference in terms of lean mass gain um and, and or sorry gain of lean mass ratio to fat mass was significantly different in the polyunsaturated fats um but i, I guess we need more kind of studies like that. yeah it's but that, that would be consistent with what we know about about fat kind of metabolism and now that nutrition science is is able to really utilize stable isotope tracer studies we're mm. able to really precisely track the fate of fatty acids and well not just fatty acids but kind of all foods we eat so we're not just able to measure the blood response in the hours after a meal like previously we're actually able to see the flux of uh, a fatty acid through tissues what what tissues does it go into uh, how long does it go in there for? How long does it come out? You know, and, and so we're getting very precise analytical methods that are allowing us to show po kind of postprandial metabolism or, or metabolism in the fed state, and and that effect of of polyunsaturated fat will be will be kind of in terms of the body composition element will will be consistent with what's starting to emerge from that. Um, if I remember, I think I remember someone commenting maybe on this study. Was this in an elderly population? Yes. Right. Yes, okay. Right, yes. So yeah. So there's the whole idea of like polyunsaturated fats potentially being beneficial, as well as higher dietary protein intake for age-related sarcopenia and anabolic resistance. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in that population, you know, it's it's always it, the question is, you know, would that same magnitude of effect occur in otherwise healthy people? I yeah. guess that's what we need to see more studies on. So, with regards then to saturated fat from dairy, is that would that would you look at that in the same light, or um, do you look at that differently? I remember reading um, some research recently on milk. Don't ask me why, but I I really got into it and went down a rabbit hole, and it seemed that there wasn't as much detrimental effects um, from from milk. So whole milk, seemed whole to be milk didn't have yogurt, whole milk yogurts, and you know, so kind of Greek yogurt and stuff, and cheese are three foods within the overall umbrella of dairy that appear to be different and again that's to do with their 
the length of their fatty acids are short to medium mm -hmm. length. And they're also, when they're in the whole milk form, um, the dairy fat is in this, is enclosed in this membrane uh, called the milk fat globule membrane. And that has signaling potential itself and appears to kind of signal to the liver not to produce as much LDL in response to that particular source of saturated fat. And there are other things, uh, characteristics of, of these dairy foods that appear to be beneficial for, for cardiovascular and metabolic health. So they, they tend to be high in dietary calcium. That might be one reason why dairy foods are quite associated with low rates of blood pressure. Um, and so we see dairy as, as quite a key component in some of the clinical nutrition intervention diets to reduce hypertension. So that the DASH diet in particular, um, dietary approaches to stop hypertension. And dairy tends to be a low, it's low salt, it's high calcium, it's high dietary protein, it's satiating. Um, the milk sugars in, in dairy are beneficial for the gut microbiome, and there could be some interaction there. And then the actual fat in the dairy matrix, if we're talking about milk, whole milk, uh, yogurts and cheese, uh, is metabolized differently to longer saturated fats that we would find in kind of beef. And then also butter, because in the process of churning uh, to create butter from, from milk um, and cream, that protective capsule that's around milk fat is removed. And we have several really nice uh, studies comparing the exact same amount of butter with cheese. So they have the exact same saturated fat amount, but they differ in the, in the type of fat in them. And butter will really drive up someone's cholesterol levels whereas the cheese won't, will have a fairly neutral effect. So we do know now that, that these foods seem to have a different impact on, on blood cholesterol levels. They also seem to have other characteristics of the food matrix that are beneficial for metabolic health, whether it's hypertension um, or whether it's potentially impacts or interactions with the gut, gut microbiome. And then there's the fact that I think to clarify that this doesn't apply to all dairy foods because things like butter or, or lard, um, you know, I think, or, you know, or double cream wouldn't necessarily kind of fall into that bracket, but yes, they are, uh, those foods in particular do seem to be associated with, with beneficial outcomes. Um, that's not to say that low fat dairy versions are also not. So there was a nice analysis that, that looked at both, whole milk sources or what we would call full fat and, and low fat sources. And, and actually they were kind of the same. So it's people don't have to ditch the low fat versions if they prefer them. Um, it's very much a kind of case of, of personal preference, but yeah, I think we can somewhat make a case that dairy fats from whole milk yogurts and cheese sources can be distinguished from the, the kind of wider, conversation uh, about about overall saturated fat intake so swap your butter in your coffee to cheese in your coffee mm -hmm. yeah maybe that'll catch brie up. brie in your coffee <laughs> yes <laughs> or perhaps perhaps milk that's probably been done before um so the, you touched a little bit on sugar there um i know that people who who want to improve their body composition um, or improve their health as well. Um, often will try and reduce sugar to an absolute minimum, um, and, and remove every type of sugar. Um, do do you think that 
there's any negative impact um, on your overall health. So from terms of body composition, it's quite clear that at least in the short term that your body composition is really going to not have make much difference once you've kind of made sure you're you sustained calorie deficit you have enough protein um but with regards to then health in the long term do you think that that's important to reduce sugar um both in a calorie deficit and a calorie surplus and is there any differences when we're talking about well reduction in, in sugar um between a surplus and a deficit because we kind of have two camps we have this kind of if it fits your macros or you kind of touched on a little bit where like well i can eat whatever i want as long as i'm in a deficit and um, but if people often take that then to heart and they just eat kind of whatever they want and say well i'm only in a 200 calorie surplus so i can kind of eat you know seven pop tarts a day and they're they're intaking like 150 grams of sugar is there any long-term impacts uh, on your health uh, besides your teeth to do yeah. something like that so so that's that's a really good question i mean I think, yes, you've identified that from a body composition perspective, you know, varying ratios of, of, of sugar, um, you know, are likely in the context of an energy deficit, not going to uh, negate the, the energy deficit. And so, you know, people can, can obviously lose body fat consuming a high sugar diet you know if, if they're in an energy deficit the amount of mass they lose is going to be a function of that energy deficit um but with yeah. with dietary sugars um you know I, there's two main kind of ways we, we we tend to look at sugar we tend to think of it in terms of direct effects and, and indirect effects and the, the direct effect of sugar is at a population level is uh, driving increasing body weight and that's generally because people at a population level consume uh, sugar in added forms uh, and they don't make compensatory adjustments in energy intake. Now, for most people that are physique minded, that's not really going to be something they fall into. So that if they're tracking macronutrients and, and that kind of thing, um, you know, they're going to have a level of control over their energy balance, whether they're in a deficit or a surplus. Um, the indirect effect of dietary sugar is on underlying processes, particularly liver fat accumulation. And then that precipitates a whole host of kind of um, potential adverse uh, underlying metabolic um, issues. And that is something that I think uh, should be considered, uh, particularly if people are in a kind of bulking phase and they're in an energy surplus. So they're they're in a, a state where they are going to gain body mass. And if they decide in a kind of flippant IIFYM approach to just consume all the jellies and they aren't taking care of their dietary fiber intake and they're, they're having a very high sugar intake as a proportion of energy, again, the, the, the fact that they're you know, uh, engaged in resistance training is, is not necessarily going to attenuate the postprandial responses to a high dietary sugar intake so if they're in a long-term bulking phase that is going up to kind of maybe six months or something like that and they're they're insisting on having a huge proportion of their dietary carbohydrate intake in the form of sugar then you know these processes of um for example the, the dose that's needed to have a potential adverse effect on triglycerides is about 50 grams of, of monosaccharide of si simple sugars and that's in a postprandial period so if someone's having a huge proportion of their dietary carbohydrate and they're they're in a bulking phase they're eating something like 600 grams of carbohydrate a day and they're having 
you know, a, a, a huge proportion of that from dietary sugars, you know, they're, again, they're not going to be exempt from the potential for adverse effect on fasting triglycerides and on, on postprandial triglycerides, the knock-on effects that that has on blood cholesterol levels. They're not going to be exempt from the potential for liver fat to accumulate, and then that could potentially drive insulin resistance. They may be somewhat because if they're resistance training, they may be able to somewhat attenuate the, the, the kind of effects of insulin resistance in the in peripheral and skeletal muscle because um, of, of the effect of resistance training on kind of insulin-independent glucose uptake. Um, but, but I certainly don't see a reason why um, someone, particularly in calorie surplus conditions uh, with a high dietary sugar intake, um, would be exempt from these potential, again, and these are underlying issues, right? So this kind of person we're describing may not even notice that they are having these kind of negative effects and then they kind of get 10 years down the line or or, or whatever and, you know, they suddenly find that, you know, they, they've kind of quite impaired glucose tolerance and it's because they developed a, a level of liver fat during the course of kind of chasing the bulk, so to speak. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I think that, I, you know, this idea that pendulum swings in nutrition are extreme. So we go from, well, sugar's toxic and, and everyone starts eating, eating clean. And that really gripped the kind of bodybuilding world and, and the kind of fitness movement. You know, and then the pendulum swings the other way, as you say, and you've got kind of if it fits your macros and well, all I'm going to eat is sugar. And, and the idea of both extremes is not sound. But certainly the idea that, that dietary constituents that have potential negative effects don't have negative effects just because someone resistance trains, um, you know, th there's just yeah. nothing to really support that. Yeah. So you, you mentioned that monosaccharides. So does that mean that um, because most times people, when they consume sugar, that it might be like a, a you know, sucrose or something. So does that mean, you, do you double that amount? So 100 grams of sugar, yeah. do you think? is that? So it's one of the things about the fructose overfeeding studies or sugar overfeeding studies is yeah. that they've used monosaccharide fructose or, yeah. or monosaccharide sugars. And generally, that's not something we have in the food supply in, in Europe. Um, and yeah. again, one of the things about, about scientific kind of studies is sometimes we need to understand mechanisms. And the fructose and the sugar overfeeding studies have been useful, but they are mechanistic studies. So they're using doses that are often not seen in the population or that people don't habitually consume. That's not to say people aren't consuming that level. There are subsections mm. that are. But in terms of the relevance of those studies, people often take them and say, oh, we'll see this is a negative effect. And it's like, well, no, you still have to contextualize it. But the, the, the reason why the 50 grams is important is because that is what has an effect on postprandial um, blood uh, lipid responses. And 50 grams a day of, of a monosaccharide fructose is, is not beyond the, the realms of possibility uh, at all if someone is consuming a high total energy intake with a yeah. high carbohydrate intake and is also emphasizing a lot of added or free sugars in their diet. So that is something yeah, I mean, that is very plausible. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was like um, uh, uh, 20 or something like that a couple of years ago, or well, eight years ago, but um, well, I, I was pretty heavy. I was kind of, I suppose, delusional in terms of how much muscle I was putting on, but I, I couldn't get the calories in. So I think every day after I 
trained i would literally eat the full bag of haribo or equivalent which was probably around 50 grams oh, of right of fructose like 100 grams of, of sucrose table sugar so i mean um i definitely wasn't in the best health then but i guess that's not unusual for a lot of people um who are bulking that they they find it hard to eat food or get food in um and i think i, I want to touch on this in a moment but when we get to a certain body weight, I know people who are like fitness orientated say BMI isn't that important, but on a population level, obviously it's quite important because most people don't have that much muscle mass. But there's a point where um, anecdotally, um, when you're getting very lean, your body starts to fight against you. When you talked about that a little bit, you're, you just don't want to go that, out of that set point. But the, the the same happens also when you're getting too heavy, you, right. you just, your appetite your appetite slows down you you thought like 10 weeks ago or 10 kilos ago you're going to eat be able to eat all the food in the world all the time and then all of a sudden you can't really stomach food anymore right. so people start to do these things with liquid calories even some like bodybuilding supplements or sports supplements like dextrose will be taking like 100 grams of dextrose around their workouts and a dextrose is a is a monosaccharide right That's yeah the glucose yeah uh, form, form of glucose right um but is it specifically fructose or mono, other monosaccharides as well that Fru- can have fructose does like behave that? slightly differently because it's metabolized by the liver um yeah. and so actually your blood glucose response to fructose uh, you don't actually see in the acute kind of two hours after a meal you won't see pronounced impacts on on blood glucose the way you do with fructose. And when you look at some of these overfeeding studies, um, the negative effects on on liver fat and on insulin resistance uh, are actually only seen in the fructose overfeeding group and not in the glucose overfeeding group. So there is definitely something specific about fructose metabolism uh, that you know leads to these kind of adverse effects on on, on liver fat accumulation um, and the kind of downstream effects of the consequences of increasing liver fat um, and you know a, a, again that that is something that we kind of can quite concretely say from the mechanistic studies but the mechanistic studies don't always mean that the mechanism will will happen in real life it's just giving us an insight but I do think you know, the, 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 the 50 grams kind of postprandial response is something that is potentially achievable in the, in, in kind of people's day to day dietary habits. If they're, you know, if they're kind of just being fairly flippant about their choices. Yeah. yeah. And it, I think it's important to mention though, just in case anybody thinks that you're not saying that you shouldn't get like, you know, two servings of fruit. No, um, no, 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 work not at all. Like that. No. I mean, fruit at the end of the day, when you strip it back, I mean, mostly fiber and water i mean that the, the level of of fruit that you would have to consume to to replicate a dose used in some of these studies is just i mean good luck <laughs> yeah. you probably, probably need to eat uh, 12 bananas to get 50 grams of fructose because right, it's not all fructose and banana it's glucose as well right so um if you can do that and you don't puke then good good luck um i actually saw this guy on youtube before just uh his name is frank yang he's like a youtuber and he does like these He's like a bodybuilder, but he does these stupid eating things, uh, challenges. And he he did sprints, and he was like sprint, eat like ten bananas, and drink two liters of milk, and sprint back, and just kept doing that until he puked. So yeah, pretty pretty stupid. <laughs> yeah, pretty stupid stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, final question for you, Alan. Um, I, I mentioned it a second ago about the you know pushing your body weight up. Do you think that um, because because often I notice this anecdotally throughout my my 
my training career that people would just assume that I know everything about health and I am the you know the epitome of health because I'm I, I weight train so is there is there issues specifically with pushing your body weight up even if you are resistance training because for the most part most people are going to be gaining mainly fat when they're gaining body weight and um, if they're doing it relatively fast or even you know quite slowly um, it, it, can we see issues with regards to that well yeah i mean yes there 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 is always a consequence to to increasing body mass um and while a proportion of that will be lean mass absolutely i mean i think we're talking about the degree of extremity here as well um you know and if we're looking at the professional bodybuilding ranks there's obviously a lot more going on in the in in the pursuit mm. of that size um that is concretely going to have adverse effects on cardiovascular and, and metabolic health and um, we know that you know anabolic steroids have quite profoundly negative impacts on on cholesterol levels for example and lead to like low hdl high ldl and this kind of phenotype that's very much associated with heart disease um and you see that with a lot of 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 kind of former bodybuilding greats is you know they're getting heart bypasses and 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 have a lot of cardiovascular complications um for your kind of natural training um athlete who is simply pursuing that through you know essentially food and and, and training and supplementation um you know that the, the 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 level of intake that is going to be required um you know if that's if that's pursued over time there there is an inevitable negative um kind of body composition uh, effect and you know you you there's only so um big you can get uh with any increase in calories um only a certain amount of that size is is ever going to be lean muscle mass and so as you've said like you know the 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 consequence of increasing total body mass is a lot of fat mass comes along with that um you know and again if someone gets very very big they're not going to be independent of the potential downsides of increasing mass and increasing adiposity simply because you know they're doing a hard chest session once a week um and you know and and whatever their training split happens to be um you know often in the pursuit of that kind of size certainly in the, in the, in the bodybuilding world in the off season context you know what gets sacrificed is any sort of additional cardiovascular work as well right so you know there's 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 a there's a physical training implication for the pursuit of that kind of size and then there's also the implication of simply that enormous consumption of of, of calories um and the fact that to fit in that amount of energy over the course of a day means that you have to really extend the amount of time you're in a fed state what we're really understanding now more in nutrition science is that a lot of the complications that develop for for cardiovascular or metabolic disease occur in this fed state and so people are spending a huge duration of the day in a fed state you're constantly processing nutrients constantly having fat in the blood glucose in the blood you know, there, there, there. Again, the, 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 there are potential consequences to that if that's a practice that's pursued over time, um, and you know that the, there, there is not going to be a kind of an independent lack of effect of you know constantly having high triglycerides and high blood cholesterol levels, um, and and that could be potentially something that if someone doesn't manage, 
you know, very well over the course of being in the sport for X amount of years, um, you know, comes back to, to, to maybe create some complications later. And I think, I think another thing that is important to bear in mind in that is, you know, when people get to the end of a competitive career and they're kind of just training now for the kind of sake of it or the, or just the enjoyment of it, you know, there often isn't that kind of compensatory factoring in of like, of, 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 of energy intake. And, you know, like I remember the, 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 you know, a couple of the gyms that I, I, cause I've always trained in like a powerlifting or a weightlifting gym. And, you know, you, you always get the lads there that are still like pulling on all the gear and, and, you know, talking about their diet and stuff, but you know, they're also 50 at this point and they have enormous central adiposity. Now, yeah, they're still lifting, but you know, they they haven't evolved their diet with their age, if you know what I mean. And so, yeah, yeah. so you, you know, it's, 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 um, you know, you, you don't, you don't get away with a shit diet just because you're lifting weights basically. Yeah. I, you're spot on with that observation. I see the same thing all the time. Um, even going to like bodybuilding competitions. And when I see guys who are like body, I, I never really followed like bodybuilding in Ireland per se, but when I see guys who are like in their fifties and, like my dad's in, in his I think mid mid to late fifties, but he he runs so he's in quite good health. But he hasn't got a ton of muscle mass because he doesn't really weight train. But when I see these guys and they're bodybuilders, and you think of a bodybuilder who's like you know the the sculpture of David, <laughs> Michelangelo's David, um, and then it's like that guy was a bodybuilder. I mean, he looks like he's he's pretty much obese. Like yeah, he's a bit big, right. but like he's just in terrible shape. Right. And yeah. And like you said, you see you see the same with like sports stars, you know, who just have a, an insane diet. Um. And often, like you said, they have that off-season and on-season kind of dieting and bulking. But once you've kind of finished, you're not really doing that anymore. And the amount of calories that you actually burn through through exercises uh, or through weightlifting is, is relatively small compared to even walking. Right, know? right, exactly. So I think sometimes we can kind of, in the in the physique world, we can really kind of lull ourselves into this false sense of security that, hey, you know, because I lift weights or strength train or resistance train, you know, some of these kind of extra rules don't really, really apply. Um, you know, and that's, you know, a good diet is a good diet independent of, of, of whatever that context of a good diet comes in, whether someone is a endurance athlete or a resistance trained athlete, or literally just a punter in the population that doesn't really do any activity, you know, the, the, the principles of what we know about diet and health are still applicable. And they're what, what becomes, slightly more subtle in the considerations for the kind of athletic populations there are things like you know their protein intake their carbohydrate intake their fat intake but but fat composition for example is still the same for a healthy resistance training you know male or female yeah mm-hmm. as it is for someone who potentially is a cardiovascular risk at the age of 50 yeah you don't get out of jail you don't get out of jail yeah exactly yeah and that that leads me on to this. This is definitely the last question, but I wanted to ask you this one. And that is with the, um, is there any long-term implications with having an extremely high protein diet? And when I say extremely high, I mean in the context of what is generally recommended. So like, let's say 2.2 grams or right. one gram p- per pound of body weight plus, because that's definitely very common in, in bodybuilding scenes. Yeah. And if you're bodybuilding for 20 plus years, you know, that's quite a, significant portion of your life is there any long-term impact so so as we know um there there doesn't seem to be um what is coming out now and what has been 
a drum that certain people in the kind of vegan or, or plant-based community are, are beating is this idea of IGF-1 um, being associated with, you know, with, with, with cancer later in life. And, oh, well, you don't want to have a high dietary protein intake because you'll activate mTOR and IGF-1 and, and then you'll, you'll get cancer. And that's literally the way they're framing it is like, this is going to happen. I think with anything in science, sometimes it's about weighing up the known knowns versus the kind of unknown maybe. And Mm -hmm. I find that this emphasis on IGF-1 is is a real unknown maybe, because the bottom line is you can have the the, the most perfect diet as far as we know what that means in in, in kind of scientifically and and still get cancer, right? Like as an outcome, Mm -hmm. it's the most probably random lifestyle disease that, that we have. And I'm really, I just, I, I recoil when I hear people start linking specific foods and mechanisms to diet, to cancer, um, because I think it's a bit irresponsible, but that's a side tangent. Um, with protein, what I'm saying is the known knowns are that a high dietary protein is beneficial for increasing muscle mass. We know that one of the big problems in the elderly is loss of independence um, we know that age-related sarcopenia and anabolic resistance are big factors in people as they age losing independence, uh, losing musculoskeletal integrity. And I would rather hedge my bets on having a diet that allows me to preserve lean body mass, preserve musculoskeletal integrity and preserve um, as a consequence, my independence and my, my physical ability, then worry about IGF-1. <laughs> so we, we don't necessarily have any, any good data that suggests that a high-protein diet is detrimental unless you have an underlying kidney disease or condition. Um, we do have emerging evidence supporting higher dietary protein intake or particularly whey protein in the elderly as a means to combat age-related sarcopenia. So, so I don't think, um, I, I am also, uh, I, actually I should caveat all of what I'm saying here is I'm also not convinced that I think there's a big difference between saying that a certain level of something is safe versus a certain level of something is actually needed or optimal. And, and in the sports nutrition world, I think there's been a lot of emphasis on kind of Jose Antonio's research, um, very much, very much thrown out to the popular mass by the kind of Alan Aragon, Brad Schoenfeld kind of axis of, 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 of sports nutrition gurus. And I think there's a completely different context of they're saying, well, this is 4.4 grams per kilo is safe. And it's like, yeah, fine, but... Who needs 4.4 grams? Like, there's no, you know, there's, so there's a difference between saying a high protein intake is safe, which is fine. Is it needed? I can't really see an argument um, for needing to go kind of, you know, even in, in, in a lot of populations higher than, you know, 2.2 grams. I, I don't see a need for it. Um, and so while I don't think that there are any long-term negative effects, I think that the idea of having excessively high intake, not from a health perspective, but from just a general, what, what, in order to achieve that level of protein intake, what kind of food sources do you need to have to get there? What's missing from your diet potentially in the pursuit of that intake? Yeah. 
And there, everything about nutrition is, if there's something high in your diet, what's absent the diet as a result of that? And what I tend to find, um, and this is a general observation from, from, from kind of, you know, having these kinds of conversations is what tends to go missing when people are really focused on keeping a very high dietary protein intake is fiber. And I think that is where there is a potential negative of a high dietary protein intake because some of the mechanistic studies from the microbiome research does suggest that if you don't have a high dietary protein uh, dietary fiber intake and uh, have a high protein diet that there can be some negative effects on on the composition of gut bacteria and that's something that i think is worth paying attention to so by all means have a higher dietary protein intake but make sure you're getting that 30 grams of fiber a day in whatever you've got to do to get that you know yeah, I think I think it comes down to, you know, if someone's trying to bulk and they find it difficult to eat, they're eating uh, protein, which is yeah, heavily influenced satiety, and then the same with fiber, they simply can't go, you know, get all that food in. So, right. you know, well, I'll just I'll just leave the fiber out because protein is the most important. Right, um, right. But, 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 but I guess it's definitely something to, to keep in mind. Um, you know, it's not not something that even I would have necessarily always thought of the, the forefront. I kind of think, well, well, if I'm you know I'm lifting and I'm I'm doing a little bit of cardio, I can kind of almost get away with it. Um, and and it's kind of something that people should think of when they think about long term a context of of overall health. Because how long is someone really going to be bodybuilding for? And how important is it really at the end of the day if you're not? Uh, you know making money from this and, and if you are you're probably doing a lot more things that are a lot more detrimental to your health than you know consuming yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly sugar, yeah. yeah but but alan it was a uh, great to have you on thank you so much you're you've been a wealth of knowledge um where can people find out more about you if they want to learn more so i have two main sites of kind of communication well slash three now um so first is where most people start which is social media so you can find me at, at the nutritional underscore advocate um and that's always kind of focused on more science kind of communication i have a website which is alineanutrition.com and that's very much focused on on kind of breaking down research and increasing kind of critical literacy with nutrition science um so there's a weekly research review and then there's kind of periodic lecture video lectures and and articles and i also now contribute to sigma nutrition which i'd say most of your listeners know um and we are starting in the last couple of weeks to put out some of that content um we've been doing a series on diet and cardiovascular disease and blood cholesterol levels so you can find two articles that we've produced now on sigmanutrition.com on that and i'm going to be recording a podcast with danny addressing a lot of the questions that have come out of that so that that should be out soon enough yeah and just to kind of jump in on top of that i think um your your instagram where i found you first you're definitely a really good uh, advocate for you know communicating science um, effectively and really good kind of uh, lens on public health as well yeah. which is something that i've only really been interested in before i know most of the listeners probably are more focused or interested in kind of uh, sports specific uh, nutrition and, and training but i remember i posted i think it might have been a repost of one of your things or something like that it might be the the marmot report or one of those oh yeah and somebody somebody commented oh well 
well poor people are just fat because they're lazy <sighs> that's why they're poor and fat <laughs> so it's like but it, it makes my but, brain but hurt it, <laughs> yeah. but no but no it, it is really interesting if, if people haven't actually delved into that kind of side of things before and um, how different things influence you know obesity and and you know poor health um with relate with regards to kind of social economic status um beyond what people think it's not just always about calories in calories so when you're kind of even even when people say who are listening to this podcast want to communicate um you know nutritional advice or training advice it's not always as simple for everybody to take on on board and if they can't take it on board it's not necessarily because they're just lazy or they have poor habits or whatever there might be an element of it but not for everybody all the time Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and then with regards to your website finally um obviously it's quite new but I personally am doing the masters um you know about that yeah. and I found that it's it's a really good additional resource to explain perhaps how to better read research because just because something is science and hashtag yeah. evidence based doesn't mean the science is actually Any any good. good at all yeah. so like a, a bad a badly published um well, if it's published, it shouldn't be that bad. But a badly published study is often just as bad as a bad article. Right. Um, and you, you've been quite helpful in kind of helping me understand how to read and extrapolate information from studies rather than just like reading them or reading an abstract and saying, well, well this says that. Because to be honest, my, my master's, which I paid thousands for, is, has been quite shite for that. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, so I appreciate yeah, that. No, and thanks, I think I, I really appreciate I don't know that feedback. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, and that's, but, and that's um, yeah, hopefully that's, I'm aiming it at people basically like you, as, as you know, it's, it's kind of yeah. aimed at people that are in nutrition as a profession or, you know, work with, so we've, we've a range of people from dietitians to registered nutritionists to personal trainers that are all kind of interested in like upskilling on nutrition. And so it's, it's great to hear that it's providing that because I think a lot of courses that people do there, you're learning about the research, but you're not actually learning how to read research. (laughs) I think that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really, really important. Um, I talked to Greg Knuckles about this, the fat-free mass index in terms of people saying, well, if you have a fat-free mass index over 25, it means you're not natural. But when, when you actually delve into the, the research that everybody cites when you actually look at the research the sample size is like 50 people who got paid ten dollars from the area of boston who had trained for at least 10 or two years mm. and that was the only criteria for inclusion i mean are you really if you want to get the biggest people in the world you're going to only ask 50 people who train in gyms in boston really? right That's right right yeah exactly so, yeah yeah over extrapolation yeah exactly Thanks so much for coming on, and I really look forward to uh, meeting you in person in, uh, in later February. this month. Yeah, or next yeah, month. next month. Looking yeah. forward to it, man. Yeah, appreciate, appreciate it. it. No worries. Chat to you then. So I really, really enjoyed that conversation. It was definitely something different, not the kind of guest that I would typically have on, but I, I definitely did want to get Alan on for a while to kind of look at health because when we look at bodybuilding or even, you know, training weight training and and setting up a diet when people want to lose weight or gain muscle or whatever we don't really think about health we just assume that well if we lift weights and we are in a calorie surplus or we're building muscle that means we're just automatically as healthy as possible or that we're some way shape or form immune to you know the overall kind of healthy eating guidelines and while yes if you do kind of train and work out etc you are I suppose encapsulated in this kind of um, shell or 
you know barrier where you're not as prone to get some of these uh, health related diseases or just you know abnormalities however you know as people get older we need to consider you know our long-term health and i guess this is a bigger question some of the topics like that we talked about is probably a bigger question for public health in general and i don't really talk about public health it's an area that i've kind of started to look at personally uh, more in depth in terms of how how do we actually you know battle uh, diabetes etc and it's not simply just telling people to you know eat less calories or track their macros because it's it's not quite that simple so that's why i really enjoyed speaking to alan um but i hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast and you picked up some snippets i definitely did learn a little bit um, from alan here that i'm going to be implementing so if you did enjoy it or you want to ask any questions or anything like that please do feel free to reach out to either myself or alan get all the details down in the description below and again if you want me to continue getting on great guests like alan please do leave a rating and review because it does help with the algorithm uh, to get that podcast up higher so without further ado i wish you all the best until the next podcast and i look forward to chatting to you again